G'day and welcome to Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about a graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I'm your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC, so thank you very much to both of them. For the next two to three weeks, we're going to be focusing on research related to the North. And the reason is that the Northern Symposium is coming up on the 17th of April. And so we thought it'd be a good idea to have a bit of a chat to some of our graduate students who are doing research up in the North and see what the symposium is all about. So today I'd like to introduce you to Dana Stevenson, who is doing a Master of Science in Geography under the supervision of Dr. Laura Thompson, to Greg Robson, who is also doing a Master of Science in Geography, but under the supervision of Dr. Paul Traits and Dr. Scott Lamoureux, and Branavan Sivaraja, who is doing a PhD in Biology under the supervision of, oh, Dr. John Small. So welcome to Gradja, everyone. Thanks, Colette. It's good to be here. Now, before we talk about each of your research areas, Branavan, can you tell us a bit about the symposium coming up? So Queen's University has a large, dynamic community of researchers uh, involved in the study of northern issues from various disciplines. So, for example, uh, Department of uh, Geography and Planning, Biology, Civil Engineering, Policy Studies, Geological Sciences, Sociology... Uh, environmental studies and kinesiology and health studies are just a few departments that I can think off the top of my head, but this is not an exhaustive list by any means. So the Queen's Northern Research Symposium, or QNRS for short, is an annual gathering that brings together these researchers who are working in Canada's north and other polar regions to showcase the diversity of northern research at Queen's and foster new collaborations between research groups. So this year we are hosting our seventh symposium and it's on the Uh, April 17th. Now who actually organises the symposium because I know a lot of things go on on campus and some are done by students and some by outside organisations so who's doing it this time? So the symposium like many other conferences and meetings take a lot of work so usually it's organised by a group of graduate students and a few faculty members from the Department of Geography and planning primarily. I say primarily because I'm from biology, Yes, uh, but there are <laughs> elements of geography in my research as well. So, you know. It makes sense then. Exactly. So over the past four years, I have had the pleasure of working with numerous graduate students and various professors, for example, Dr. Neil Scott, Melissa Lafreniere, Paul Trite. And this year, the team includes Jacqueline Hung, uh, Greg Robson, Dana Stevenson, Christina Braybrook. And we are working together with uh, doctors Laura Thompson and Robert Way, who have been recently hired in the Department of Geography and Planning. And within the team, we take responsible for various tasks and meet weekly to provide updates and discuss uh, the progress on the symposium. It's it's fantastic that grad students get involved in, in conferences like this and symposiums because it's a great learning tool, both in coordinating an event such as this and then, of course, during the event, the networking opportunities. It absolutely is because the learning that happens for organizing an event like this is tremendous. It's ranging from finding financial support uh, to all the way to inviting speakers to preparing name tags and every other thing that's in between. So a lot of learning takes place. I've had a few students come to me from time to time and saying, what do we need to do with the budget? 
and it was always interesting for me on that and going you've got to work out what are your necessities and what are your niceties yeah absolutely. one of those budgeting is can be a nightmare for any sort of symposium usually i take the role of uh dealing with the budget but i thought this year i would try something new and here i am here you are Orga- on grad chat yeah organizing <laughs> or coordinating the grad chat northern edition which is ter- terrific now who can actually participate in the symposium because i know grad students are helping coordinate it but who's it for so this event is open to everyone at queens and in the past we have had success in uh, drawing some attention from researchers at other universities too mm-hmm. And graduate students constitute for a large portion of the attendees. But we also have undergraduate students who are working on Northern Research attending this event. And in addition to students, we have professors, research associates and postdoctoral fellows attending this event as well. And can people still sign up? Yes, absolutely. So we'll make sure we put that on our grad chat page to where people can link to 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 sign up. Yeah, for sure. That would be awesome. Thanks, Colette. Excellent. So So what is the goal of the event? So our main goal is to create a learning environment where researchers can share their findings and learn from each other. Specifically, we encourage early career researchers such as graduate and undergraduate students and also postdoctoral fellows to present their research through oral and poster presentations because the symposium provides a unique opportunity for them to get constructive feedback on their projects from experts in the field, but also it's a platform to showcase their research. Yes. And furthermore, uh, the students will attend and network with researchers working on issues related to Northern Canada and meet prospective undergraduate and graduate thesis uh, supervisors. So this is a one-stop place to hear about all different types of Northern research that's happening at Queen's. And the event also provides an opportunity to meet research, northern researchers outside of um, Queen's as well because we bring in some speakers from outside. It sounds like it's going to be fascinating, so people can check that out on the website. So who is actually supporting Queen's Northern Research Symposium? So the Northern Research Symposium has been very fortunate to be receiving support from numerous campus partners. So we receive support from the Office of the Vice Principal Research and the School of Graduate Studies at Queen's, uh, the Principal's Student Initiative Fund. Uh, various departments provide monetary or in-kind support that includes Department of Geography and Planning, Biology, and the School of Environmental Studies. We have also had community partner involvement. For example, Trailheads has provided oh, us great. with some, some swag. Some and stuff. Yeah, oh, absolutely. So, and we are always looking for new uh, supporters. So right. If anyone is interested, shoot us an email. It's queens.nrs at gmail.com. Okay, well, that was a plug if ever I heard one. (laughs) You always got to take those opportunities to promote events. You do indeed. So, Branovan, what I didn't ask you at the beginning is, what exactly are you doing with your your research? Because you are in biology, but you said it does kind of cross over into geography as well. Yeah, so I will talk a little bit more about it in the upcoming weeks. Uh, But briefly, I'm looking at arsenic-contaminated lakes around the city of Yellowknife uh, in the Northwest Territories, uh, where gold mining was a major source Uh, of uh, resource development that took place in uh, the mid-20th century. I love that word, arsenic drops in every now and then all sorts of research (laughs) it's definitely one of the scarier contaminants that we have out there so learning a little bit more about it can inform us in terms of policies but also 
other aspects of sciences moving forward. So I think now, if you don't mind, Branovan, thank you very much for giving us an introduction to what the symposium's about and a little bit about your work. And I know we can get on to more of that at another show. And thanks for having me here today. You're very welcome. And I think now we're going to go on to Greg. So, Greg, uh, your research topic is uh, risk assessment of permafrost disturbances via differential interferometric synthetic aperture radar, or DINSA for short, which is a bit of a mouthful, the whole lot there. Tell us a little bit about that. Hi, so um, basically what, what we're seeing in, in the north is that the the permafrost, which is the layer of ground which kind of remains frozen for more than two years at a time. As the north warms, that's that area is starting to thaw. And as the ice underground thaws, obviously you're going to see some kind of subsidence and disturbances on the surface. So what we're trying to do is detect and measure and predict that using um, satellite radar images. Oh, brilliant. So you're actually looking from the top down. So it's, it's um, interferometry. So basically you take one radar image at one time and another radar image at another time. Right. And both of those allow you to produce um, like a 3D model of the surface. And by comparing those two 3D models, you can then detect the change. And if you know what time period that happened, then you can detect the rate of change over time. Rate of change. Exactly. Okay. Now, one of the labs here in in biology is actually looking at the permafrost up north too, in a different way, but looking at the microbes and how it's changing around the lakes. But yours is, like you said, yours is a little bit different because you're looking at the top and trying to measure as opposed to you're not measuring greenhouse gases but measuring the permafrost yeah we're just measuring how the basically how the surface is moving and i think that kind of points to some of the the real strengths of arctic research right is that we you know we have one research base up on melville island that i'll be going to this summer nice and there's so many different kind of disciplines going on up there together there's you know hydrology and geomorphology and and i work in a remote sensing lab so really it's you know there's something for everyone so you're gonna love it Ah, yeah, I think it'll be. Um, I think it'll be a really good experience. Obviously, kind of that's why I came to Canada to to try to get involved in some of the Arctic research. Because if you noticed, uh, Greg has a bit of an accent there, Scotland. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, all uh, the way from Bonnie Scotland. All the way from Bonnie Scotland, from the lochs and the glens. <laughs> yeah. To come to a uh, a school that has Scottish roots. Exactly. There you go. So, in a nutshell, what is permafrost, and why does it matter that you need to look at this? Well, the permafrost is really, um, so if you think of the ground kind of as a series of layers, um, kind of starting from the top down, there's a layer called the active layer. Now that's kind of a layer of soil that um, freezes and thaws on a yearly basis. Okay. And generally below that, there's a layer of permafrost, which will remain frozen for the definition is any time longer than two years at a time. Okay. That's permafrost. Um, And from my perspective, it's kind of important to understand how it's degrading and how it's changing for... Well, my like favorite application is looking at kind of con- problems with construction. Right. If you're going to want to build roads or buildings on top of this, it's really useful to be able to predict what areas might subside or heave or crack or buckle. Okay, because it's not going to be as strong as it, we thought it was. Yeah, exactly. And and if you're putting a layer of asphalt on top of that, then if the ground itself starts to move, then you're going to have problems for your road. Right. Right. And obviously, there's a lot of as you said, there's things to do with carbon and greenhouse gases. There's also kind of hydrological reasons to, to be interested in it. So I think it's a really, I think it's a really neat area to be involved in. How long is the data being collected right now? Because, I mean, you've only just, how long yeah. have you been here at Queen's? So I arrived in Queen's only in September. Right. But luckily for me, I mean, um, our research base up north, 
They've been there for almost 15 years now. So they've got a fair amount of data. So they've got a lot of data, especially on kind of soil measurements and moisture measurements. Right. And then the kind of satellite radar images I'm doing, we've been doing that for about almost 10 years now. Okay. So what it's going to allow me to do is to look at changes on the short term within a single summer and look at that long term, maybe almost decadal change. So is it changing? From what you've seen so far from the data, I know you haven't done this summer's testing, but yeah, so there's definitely some kind of uh, subsidence happening, and also uh, frost heave, which is where the ground actually kind of moves upwards oh, due okay. to the effect under the ground. You can see those through comparing satellite images, but also you're able to see pretty dramatic things happening on the surface too, right. kind of la- almost like landslide like events happening. Is that right? Because the ground at times can kind of give way, and when that happens, the the rest of the ground can kind of slide and cascade. So is it landslides? There's also things like sinkholes and, and things like that? Or is that sinkhole a different thing altogether? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a slightly different thing. Most, mostly what you see is the ground either subsiding or moving upwards. Right. But there's also things like patterning happening where the ground might look kind of like a, like a honeycomb of cracks. Okay. And those things, of course, can fill with water and then create small lakes and... Right. The effects magnify, so there's definitely a lot of really interesting things to look at. So you said you're going to Mel- Melville Island? Melville Island, yeah. And is there a, a community around there as well, or is it just? are you looking at just the, the natural land? Yeah, so it's actually a, it's an uninhabited island. Okay. I believe it's the third largest uninhabited island in the world. Oh, is that right? So it's um, it's, it's a quite a big one. Right. Um, so, so it's just more of a conservation area at the moment. Yeah, it's just kind of a it's kind of a neat place to do research. We do have to be a wee bit careful where we do our research, though, because our base is right on the border of Nunavut and Northwest Territories. Okay. And I believe we're only allowed to do science in in Nunavut, so we have to be a wee bit careful right. where we where we go. That which makes makes sense, but that's all part of doing research, it's isn't it? Like getting it, yeah. the right permissions. Absolutely. For things, so. What predicts these changes and how can we best measure them? I mean, obviously, you're looking at over the top, mm-hmm. measuring them, but what else? So there's a lot of, lot of different factors, and, and I guess the second strand of my research is trying to go up there and measure certain characteristics and then match that with these change maps. Right. Um, so things like soil moisture, things like ice content in the ground, mm-hmm. things like amount of vegetation which is on the ground can also predict um, how likely disturbances are to happen. Right. So all these little variables, they all play their part. And trying to untangle that's really the the job at hand here. So you've got a lot of work to do in a short time. I do, and it, you know it's <laughs> it's quite a it's quite a daunting task to mm-hmm. be honest. So when you're going up there, what kind of equipment is equipment staying there with up there all the time, or do you have to bring it in and out each time? Um, it's a bit of both. There's another more major base also in the north, but not quite at Melville Island, which we kind of use as a kind of a stopover point. Okay. So a lot of stuff is stored there. That's kind of the centre for the all, all of Canada's Arctic research. It'll be quite an adventure. I'm quite looking forward I to it. I bet it is. I, mean, this is. I think this is what's fascinating about the work that gets done up there. I'm not, I'm not quite looking forward to sleeping in a tent for, you know, six weeks, but that's all part of it. It is all part of it, part of that experience that you all have to do. That's where I'd be taking a caravan, but I know that's probably not allowed. <laughs> yeah, I've heard, I've heard previous uh, previous people who have been to Cape Bounty say that it's incredibly hard to sleep at first. Right. Not only because of the you know the constant daylight. Yes. The fact that the tents are bright orange as well keep, keeps it kind of bright, 
but kind of the the worry about polar bears as well can be quite oh, scary um, mm-hmm. if you're trying to get to sleep. I'm hoping that I'll just be too tired to, to worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But you get training in what to do up there, don't you, in terms of safety and everything? That's yeah, a big part of absolutely. doing your research. Yeah, they take it pretty seriously. And um, to be honest, I think that's pretty wise because it's not somewhere you can just like leave in a hurry. No. You know, you need to be a bit smart about your kind of first aid training and your firearms training. And yeah. So. See, what a great experience. I'm, I'm just, to be honest, I'm just totally jealous. Wow. Have, have you ever thought, and maybe it's, it's one, it's not allowed, and, and two, it's just a ridiculous idea, but the, all the imaging that you're taking, you're taking it during the summer months. Yeah. Would it be different if you took it? In the winter months, apart from the fact it's cold, much colder, so therefore some of those layers might have frozen again being winter. I mean, is there a, would there be any reason to do both measurements in summer and then again in winter? Because you can see what's the difference yeah. in temperatures in winter too. So I think the, the, the big problem in that case for what I do is I'm, I'm using radar images, right. which is the sensor which is attached to the satellite. And that kind of works by looking at the, so it sends down your kind of radar pulses and it and it looks at what the backscatter signal looks like. And if your ground is covered in snow, that's going to be a serious problem. Ah, because you can't get you're into not, it. And you're not going to be able to actually see what's it. going on in the, you know, in the top few centimetres of the soil, which is what we're interested in. So would you then, because that wouldn't be possible, then just look at what are the, the temperatures from the weatherman up there during winter? Yeah, because exactly. I imagine... Because, I mean, part of climate change and all those sorts of things is the temperatures around the the full year are changing. Mm-hmm. So winters aren't as cold as they used to be, Yeah, that sort of thing. So that's clearly going to have, have, have an effect too of Definitely. it hasn't got that, hasn't got cold enough. So when summer comes, it's easier to melt whatever's there. Yeah. And obviously when the when the snow decides to melt, we'll... we'll depend on kind of when our first useful image comes from right so that could be as early as sort of towards the middle of may or it could be towards the end of may okay so Um, that would show a a change then too um but we're more really interested in like if there's big been big rainfall events during the summer or it's been a particularly cold or warm summer that's kind of the metrics that okay i've heard being thrown around more than you got your work cut out for you absolutely you better take I know it's summer, but you probably still need woolies for night time. I, I won't forget my, uh, <laughs> my toque. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've got in this Canadian swing of it. It's a toque. It is. Took me a while. It used to always be a beanie. <laughs> so next I want to talk to Dana, whose research topic is glaciology and glacier dynamics, which is pretty fancy, actually. And my understanding is you're investigating the fern density on White Glacier, which is up at Axel Heiberg Island in Nunavut, is that correct? Yep. And you're looking at how it's changing with climate change, and which is, once again, really appropriate because of the symposium coming up, everything that's going on in the north, both normal research and the effects, of course, what's happening up there with climate change. So do you want to tell me a little bit more about that, about your research, and then what is your favourite or least favourite part about the Arctic fieldwork? Because I've just heard Greg... And he's getting a tad worried about working up there. Six weeks in a tent. He's not too keen on that. But what about you? Um, Well, my research is looking at how the accumulation area on White Glacier is changing. We're suspecting that it's densifying. So it's actually becoming more dense in its sort of snowy area. 
which can be an issue for estimating mass change because if we're looking at mass change looking through a volume change, things have to be converted from volume to mass with an assumption of density. But if the glacier is becoming more dense, then it could be becoming smaller but also keeping the same mass. So can I just take one step back then because often you hear about glaciers there's only a few that are still advancing in the world and a lot of them are retreating yeah most of them are retreating so this white glacier is retreating it is retreating so it it, it is losing volume as well but um, we're just curious how the fern dynamics are changing so the fern is the um, snowy part of the accumulation area. Okay, you know it's funny. I'm going to tell everybody this because I'm I'm okay at making a fool of myself. When you put the word fern, F-I-R-N, I yeah, thought, you you think I, I made a typo? typo. <laughs> and so I changed it to fern, as in the green leafy things. So, thank you for clarifying that because it's not about trees. <laughs> it's about the snow yeah. accumulation. Microsoft Word underlines it in red every time. Oh, does it? <laughs> so that's good because I was going to do some other things. So so do you like working up in the Arctic? Yeah, I'd say my favorite part of working in the Arctic is seeing all the wildlife and right. just the undeveloped landscape is so captivating. I think my least favorite part would be it's so dependent on the weather. Or getting in and out? Getting in and out and even what you do day to day, sort of wake up and see what's going on. And it's hard to make plans that way because it's, well, we'll see what the weather's going to do. So nothing's right. 100% until the Til- day off. Until you're there. Until you're there, hopefully there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what got you interested in glaciology? Because I know, I mean, Canada does have, in my understanding, a lot of glaciers. And But what got you interested in glaciology here? Yeah, it's interesting. Compared to the rest of the world, our glaciers are so inaccessible. Most of them are up in Nunavut. There's some in the Yukon in the St. Elias mountain range, mm-hmm. but still pretty inaccessible for most of the population. So I got interested in glaciology. I was fortunate my undergrad, I got to work in the Arctic oh, and um, got introduced to Arctic landscapes and just thought that glaciers would be a really fun thing to um, research. So here I am. Here you are. And you do it through geography. I mean, one thing about geography, there's different er- so many different areas of geography, from human geography to what I call landscape geography. I don't know if that's the correct terminology. But you could easily have done some of that through biology, couldn't you? Or is it very, or, or geology? I, I worked a biology job in my undergrad as well and right. wasn't so keen on it. Really thought I'd enjoy glaciology, glaciology. more and definitely do. So I'm lucky that I ended up here. So have you, I mean, I know you're in your master's and is this the first time you're going up to for this particular project or have you, did you go last year as well? Yeah, I went last year. I went ahead of actually starting my master's right. just to start with data and hit the ground running and yeah, I felt really lucky to have had a field season ahead of actually starting. So like Greg, was the other data already being collected for you or are you starting yep. from scratch? No, there's a wealth of data on this glacier. It's it's pretty well studied. It's one of the World Glacier Monitoring Services reference glaciers. We're coming up on 60 years of, oh, 60 of years. mass balance records. Yeah. And have so, you had a chance to look at some of those, that data now just to see what happened 60 years ago to now? I mean, I imagine the collection data... <laughs> The way to collect the data was, has changed a lot, or not? Um, only a little bit. Uh, we still do density pits and use ablation stakes to measure. So what's an ablation stake? So you drill a very long metal oh, hole so into it's like the, the ice. the coring? Is that like coring? or? Um, kind of. We're just drilling a big hole right. um, and then putting the stake in and measuring how much is poking out of the ice. And then the next year, 
we see how much more is poking out of the ice, and okay. that's um, indicative of melt. See, everybody, how simple is it? <laughs> Very simple. All we do is subtraction. That's a joke in glaciology. Oh, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I like it when researchers have a sense of humor. So that's good. So, so what is happening with the fern density up on White Glacier? And what do you, what do you wish the public to understand about glaciers and climate change? Well, I haven't compiled everything, so I'm not, I can't really comment on the fern density just yet. But what I hope that people understand about glaciers is that there's, there's sometimes talk of protecting glaciers or saving them. Right. But really, the only thing that's going to um, prevent further retreat of glaciers is addressing climate change, um, which mm -hmm. that kind of differs from other issues with climate change, because like in biology, when species are going extinct, climate change is a compounding factor, among other things, urban sprawl, pollution, right, right. those sorts of things. So addressing climate change is just a part of addressing those issues. But with glaciers, it's kind of the whole solution it's or the whole mitigation thing that you can Because it's warming up, we're yeah. losing it. Mm -hmm. Not getting the same snowfall and all that sort of thing. Yeah. It's scary times for all of us, isn't it? I remember actually going and walking on that glacier, um, you know, in Alberta or BC, on the ice highway. The Columbia then. ice field? Yes, yeah. yes. So I imagine, though, I mean, up where you are, you wouldn't have a lot of foot traffic, but on that one, there's heaps of foot traffic, so that clearly is not good for the glacier either. Um, well, it, it is good that people are learning about them and um, having an interest. That's always a good thing. But, but then they've got those big machines that take you up there, and then you get blown to bits when you're standing on it and get blown away. <laughs> it was fascinating. <laughs> I think I did that as a child. It was actually quite fun, and yeah. we got to drink some of the glacier water. Oh, did you? Which oh, maybe isn't the best idea. <laughs> no, probably not. Probably not. I remember going down to Franz Joseph in New Zealand, and you were allowed to walk on that too. But just getting to the glacier was um, quite a long walk. <laughs> Anyone, any of you can jump in here just to help finish off this show. What I would like to say then, I mean, you're all doing very different research, all, once again, all up in the north, which is fantastic. It just goes to show us how much work is going on and how important each different area is for us to understand what climate change is happening or doing to our, our environment. If you had to say one thing to, one, to a person, how would you sum up the importance of your research? Go, Greg. I mean, uh, as as I was saying earlier, for for kind of, I mean, I guess this is less less about the environment, but um, you need to know how permafrost is degrading and the ground is changing if you want to do big infrastructure projects. Right. So purely from a financial basis, right. save a lot of money on maintenance. Right. Save a lot of money on unnecessary construction. Right. That's probably what I'd say. That's pretty good. <laughs> and what about you, Dana? Because sometimes you know, when we're doing research, it, it's important to us as the researcher. Mm -hmm. But why would anyone else worry about what you're doing up there? Why should they worry? Why should they care? So we're looking at just one glacier, but there are thousands of glaciers in the Canadian Arctic. And they all contribute to sea level rise. Okay. And aside from the ice sheets, the Canadian Arctic is, the I think, the largest source of potential sea level rise. Right. And what about you, Branavan? I know we didn't talk too much about yours, but we can come back to you. Yeah, I think we will definitely revisit this question like the next time we meet up. But in the meantime, uh, the research in Canada's north, I think it definitely contributes to our understanding of how these environments are changing. 
and these environments are home to people and also other animal species that mm-hmm. we value so much. Right. So I think understanding more about this is important for policy, but also for the effective management of these environments. Right. Oh, nicely said. Nicely said there, Branavan. That was a good way to sum up the whole session today. And don't forget, people, we are going to have another session next week to talk about to talk to a couple more of the grad students who do work up in the north and will also be a part of the Northern Research Symposium. So, Branavan, Dana and Greg, it has been great chatting with you. Thanks for coming on the show and good luck with the rest of your research. And, of course, enjoy the symposium that's coming up. And thanks for having us here today. That was a nice round. So that's it, everyone. Another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget, you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Podcast or Stitcher. Just type in Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. This podcast is produced in collaboration with CFRC.ca in Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Infrastructure support for the CFRC podcast project is provided by Queen's University's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. For more information or to get involved in podcasting, visit podcasts.cfrc.ca.